Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, I want to thank you all for coming on here uh, on this um, Arab Thursday night, Arab Shabbos. We got here something very special. We have on somebody from Israel. Sherry Orbach is here from Israel. And I just want you to know, she, she's on mute because we muted everybody, but I just want you to know every, every one of us, our hearts, our thoughts, our prayers are with you in Israel and what, what you're going through. Um, before, I, I want to talk about Shavuos. I want to connect Shavuos to a couple of different things. But the first thing I want to talk about is I want to connect Shavuos with the situation that's going on in Israel right now. Right now, unfortunately, the, the, it's, it's really impossible to describe um, what's going on in Israel, what it's like to live in Israel and to see hundreds of rockets shooting over your head. My brother lives in Ashkelon. Ashkelon, if you, on the, on the Israeli map, so you have like, the Israel sort of like a triangle and Gaza's right, right where the apex of the triangle is. And then just, just to the north of Gaza, as you start going up the coast, the first city you hit is Ashkelon. Then you hit Ashdod. And then eventually, you know, you hit Rishon Lezion, Tel Aviv, and eventually even further away, Haifa. Um, there was a, a, a siren that went off in Nazareth Elite, Nazareth Elite, which is much way, way north. So it means that rockets are getting further and further. The, uh, the terrorists, the horrific Hamas terrorists who are just sending salvos and salvos of rockets are now sending them by the hundreds because they tried to overwhelm the Iron Dome protection, right? Israel has developed this incredible technology, which by the way, is called in Hebrew, it's called Kippat Barzel, right? It's a kippah. It's just interesting. It's got like a like a Hebrew name, like a Jew, we, we recognize that word keepa very well, keepa of protection, of iron dome. And uh, they, the, the shtick that the Hamas is doing right now is they're just throwing hundreds of bombs. They boast about how they threw, they shoot 137 rockets in less than five minutes at Israel. Again, here's people boasting online saying, we shot 137 rockets at civilians, right? We shot 137 rockets at children at women, at adults, at civilians, and they're boasting about it. So, so this is where we're at right now. And unfortunately, this is not just, not all the rockets are being picked up by the Iron Dome. There have already been a number of casualties. There are military casualties. Yesterday, there was a, a, a Jeep that was shot with an anti-tank missile and a, and a young man died and three others are wounded. There are civilians that are that are that are unfortunately dead right now. There are civilians sleeping around the clock in bomb shelters. And yet, yet amazingly, the world still hasn't quite figured out what side is the right side. And we're going to urge restraint on both sides. So I, I want to talk about when you, when you see pure anti-Semitism, and if you want to see pure anti-Semitism. Look at people who are literally in the middle of Israel, li just literally people in their homes afraid for their lives because there are hundreds and hundreds of rockets. And, and, and someone, Ilhan Omar, the congresswoman, she writes that the Palestinians don't have an Iron Dome system. And someone wrote back, you know what the Iron Dome system for the Palestinians is? Stop shooting rockets at Israel. <laughs> All you got to do is stop shooting rockets at Israel and no one's coming for you. Your safety and your security is dependent on stop trying to kill civilians. That's all you need to do is stop trying to kill Israeli children and women and adults and men and elderly. And you're not going to have to worry. Nothing's coming out of the sky for you. 
Israel has to put up sophisticated, technologically advanced, incredible inventions like the Iron Dome system to try to shoot rockets out of the air because people are trying to shoot us and bombard us. And when we try to shoot rockets out of the air, some are successful, some are not. And it's a big political game for Hamas and, and, and Fatah because the way you show that you're better in the Arab world is if you kill more Jews. The more support you get. Right now, there's a political rivalry. It's been going on for a long time. There's a political rivalry between the PLO, Fatah, and Hamas. So Fatah incites people to riot against the Israelis at Al-Aqsa, at, at Jerusalem, once again, right? They use their, their mosque as a staging ground for terror. And then, you know, Fatah is doing a lot of stuff against Israelis. Hamas is going to start looking bad. So Hamas is like, yeah, we're going to do this too. Don't, we also hate the Jews. We also want to kill Jewish children. Look what we can do. There's videos. You can see these videos. Salvo after salvo after salvo of hundreds of rockets. And yet you still have all these people saying Israel's committing genocide. Israel's committing genocide. If Israel wanted to commit genocide, Israel could flatten the entire Gaza Strip in 12 minutes. I'm not even kidding when I say that. Israel has the, um, enough armaments, enough bombs, that they could flatten the entire Gaza Strip in 12 minutes. If they wanted to do ethnic cleansing, they could do it like this. They could kill thousands. The Palestinians want to kill thousands. They tell you that straight out. They want to kill as many men, women, and children as they, as, as they can. And they say it to you. They're not hiding it. They're saying straight out, we want to kill Israelis. From sea to shining sea, we want you know Israel to be Judenrein. We want to kill all the Jews, shove them into the water, and they say it openly. And we say we're trying as hard as possible to minimize civilian casualties, but they hide all their guns that they're pointing at us in civilian centers. And the fact that you know the fact that you know, the numbers coming in—I don't know what the numbers exactly are from Gaza right now. Let's say there's 70, 80, 100 people in Gaza who have been killed. I don't know what exactly the numbers are. But do you think the Israelis are not capable of killing thousands? Do you think the Israelis are not capable of carpet bombing the Gaza Strip? Of course they are. If they really wanted to connect, commit genocide, they would have done that in the first 15 minutes of the war. But we don't. We value life. We celebrate life. So how do we understand this? How do we understand this? And I talked about this on Thursday night, and I want to connect this to Shavuos, because we're right now, right up coming on Chag Shavuos, we're coming up the incredible Yom Tif where we celebrate the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. The Gemara asks the following question. The Gemara says, why is Mount Sinai called Mount Sinai? Why was it called Har Sinai? And the Gemara answers that it's called Har Sinai because it's a mountain upon which hatred for the Jew came down to the world. Again, it's called, the word for hatred in Hebrew is sin'ah, says the Gemara. It's not like lady made this up, like, oh, sin'ah, sin'ah, no, this is the Gemara. The Gemara says, why was it called Har Sinai? Because it's the mountain upon which hatred came down to the world against the Jews. Why would the rest of the world care if the Jewish people in a desert, in the Sinai desert, somewhere in between Egypt and Israel, stood around a mountain and got a godly way of living? Why would that cause anti-Semitism? 
Why would a nation sitting in a desert all by themselves, far away from everybody else, getting a divine message of morality and wisdom, cause hatred to the Jews? And the answer is as follows. Nature abhors inequality. We have a rule, right? If you have a, if you have a room that's cooled down to, it's the middle of the summer, it's boiling hot outside, right? And you have your room set, your, you have your dining room set to 69 degrees, nice, cold, and someone opens the door. So what does your father say? Can you shut the door? I'm not paying to air condition the whole outside. What does that mean? Because by nature, when it's 69 here and it's 87 over here, as soon as that happens, nature starts creating a flow to make things equal. So the cold air goes flowing out, the hot air comes flowing in, and it will continue to happen like that until indoor and outdoor are exactly the same. Because nature abhors inequality. Human beings don't like inequality. We don't like it if I feel like I'm at level 17 and I see somebody else at level 40, I don't like it. That's what jealousy is all about. I don't like that he's at level 17, I'm at level 40. Now there's different kinds of jealousies. There's like, I'm jealous of his car. I want his car. It's not fair. Why does he have a Ferrari and I have a Fiat? I don't have a Fiat, but I thought it was cool. F and F, right? Ferrari and Fiat. Why does he have a um, Aston Martin? And I have a foot-powered bike. <laughs> I don't like inequality. I don't like it when someone seems to be above me. Now, there's different ways that I could try to solve this inequality. There's ways in which I say, well, this guy's got a nice car. I really would like a nice car. Maybe I'll start working a little bit harder. and Maybe I can earn myself the ability to buy a nice car. That's one thing. Or I could say, let me make a riot and destroy this guy's nice car. Guess which one is easier? It's a lot easier to destroy his nice car than for me to work hard and be able to buy a nice car. It's a lot easier for me to tear him down, <laughs> excuse me, than for me to build myself up. Now, if that applies in the world of financial things, physical stuff, Ferraris, Fiats, Fords, it for sure applies way more so in spirituality. There's somebody in my group. There's somebody down my block. And he's just a better human being than I. That's it. He is. He's a better human being than I. When he's, when I feel like as a human being on a scale of one to 10, maybe I'm a 17. And he's a 72. He's so far high above me. So there's one or two things that I can do. I hate the inequality part. So what I could try to do is either I could try to climb up and become a better human being and learn from him. And guess what? Most of the time he's happy to share. I'm so happy that on my block right now, in the last five, seven years, so many people, so many amazing people moved in that are so much greater than me. I feel so blessed to be on this block. You know, the, the Mishnah and Ethics of Our Fathers says it's better to be the 
tail of the lion than the head of the fox. And Baruch Hashem, the neighborhood that I live in, in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years, so many amazing people have moved in. I love it. There's so many people I can look at and say, I want to be like him. I want to be like him. I want to be like him. And in spirituality, that's, that's a good thing. Shlomo Amelch, the wisest of all men, said to us, Kinas sofrim tar which means being jealous of scribes, being jealous of scholars, being jealous of those who study and learn will increase your wisdom. So if I see a guy who's learning a lot, I see a guy who's davening well, I see somebody who's so such an incredible father to his children, and I say, I want to be like that too. Again, I see him at 72 and I'm at 17, and I say, oh, I want to get there. I'm going to try to climb up. Says Shlomo Amalek, that's a good thing. If you're jealous of the scribes, you're going to increase your wisdom because you're going to want to learn more. Great. Go for it. By all means. But then there's the other kind of people. But they don't want to grow more. But they don't like the inequality. So what do they do? They just tear down those other people. Oh, look at that guy. What a loser. Oh, he's all orthodoxy, all crazy, fanatical. He's a fanatic. He's a right-wing fanatic. He's crazy. He's all religious. And you tear them down. And then even though they're really at 72, if you criticize them enough and you tear them down and you fight them and you make war against them, whatever form you can, eventually you get them down until they're at 17 too. And then all is good with the world. We can all wallow in our patheticisms. That's the other way we can do it. And we see that. We see that if there's a group of people and one person in the group decided that they're not going to speak Lashon Hara, let's say. They're not going to speak gossip, which is an admirable, incredibly admirable thing. Sometimes other people in the group are like, oh, what do you think? Oh, you think you're so from? You think you're so religious? Oh, you can't talk bad about anybody. What do you think? You're, you're such a goody two-shoes. And they viciously sometimes attack that good person because they feel uncomfortable. They know they shouldn't be talking smack about anybody either. But they do. And then this person, being a good person right there, just creates this inequality. I'm at 17. They're at 72. I don't feel comfortable. So I got to tear them down. I got to make fun of them. I got to belittle them. I got to do everything I can to bring them down. Often, children go off to study, and they maybe come home more religious. And when they come home, their parents get very angry. What, you think we're not religious enough for you? No, I never said that. Well, you think our Judaism isn't valid? No, 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 you're, I, I, I didn't say that. But there's a sense of like, uh-oh, this person just spent two years of their life developing their spirituality, and I didn't. And I feel less than, so therefore I want to attack them and make them look like they're a bad child, they're not showing respect, which they may not be doing at all, but it makes me feel better about the fact that my kids spent two years developing themselves spiritually. I don't want to do that, so I can just tear them down. That happens all the time, by the way, all the time. There are many times parents who see, unfortunately, children who become more deeply connected to their Judaism and the parents, feeling guilty, do what they can to tear down that person, make them look like they're a bad child for taking a different path. Says the Gemara, why is Harsinai called Harsinai? Because it's the mountain from which hatred came down to the world because God gave the Torah at Mount Sinai. The Medrash tells us that God offered the Torah to all the nations of the world. And they all said, thanks, but no thanks. It's just a little bit too hard for us to do. All these moral precepts, all the self-control that you're asking of us, 
this giving away of our hard-earned money to charity, this keeping and maintaining high levels of purity in terms of our loyalty and our physical and intimate relationships. This mitzvah that you're not allowed to make fun of other people. You're not allowed to kill other people. <laughs> Killing, that's what we do on Sunday. We watch gladiators get into the arena and kill each other and club each other to death. No thanks, God. We don't want your Torah. It's demanding too much of us. No thank you. And the Jewish people said, yes, please. And by that, the Jewish people have climbed to level 74, 75, 85, whatever it may be. And the rest of the world chose to not do that. And now they look at the Jewish people up here and they see that the Jewish people have a special connection with God. The Jewish people are the most charitable people in the world. The Jewish people have Atzala, which is an organization entirely made of volunteers, thousands and thousands of them all over the world to save lives when EMS can't get there fast enough. And it's functioning all over the world incredibly well, saving lives by the hundreds every single year. No one else in the world has that. When there's a disaster, a tsunami, an earthquake, the Israelis are the first people to get the help on the ground. We have, we have Chaverim, which is an organization that just started maybe 10 years ago, saying, if you got a flat tire, if you lock yourself out of your house, if you lock yourself out of your car, we'll come and help you. Forget about waiting an hour and a half in the cold for AAA to get there. We'll take care of you. You're my brothers. You're my friends. No one else in the world does that. Hebrew Free Loan Society that is in every single city. Sefer Kadisha, the people who are volunteering to take care of bodies after they've passed and properly prepare them for burial. The levels of support that we provide to each other, each other and ourselves. And yes, you're right, Flo, sending aid to India. The Jewish people are involved in kindness and goodness on a level no one else in the world can match. So the world has a choice to make. You can do one of two things. You can either say, wow, you Jews, you do such amazing things. Teach us how to make Hatzalah. Teach us how to make a bigger cholim. Teach us how to have phone books filled with gemachim. A gemach is a, Hebrew, a free loan society. In, in Israel, they have 20, this is going back maybe 15 years ago already, maybe 20 years ago already. I saw there's a, a phone book from Jerusalem that had a listing over 2,500 gemachs. Gemachs are things that people loan stuff for free. You need tables because you have a simcha, you go to this gemach. You need centerpieces because you're having a simcha and you want beautiful you know, flowers, go to this gemach. You need a fax sent out, go to this family. They have a fax. They're happy to just fax out your machine. It doesn't cost them anything. Don't go to Kinko's or FedEx and pay $2 a page. Come to our house, we'll do it for free. You need money, come here. There are mothers that have a gemach of, of mother's milk. There are babies that are allergic to formula but their mothers are not able to produce either at all or enough milk. There are mothers who have gemachim. They express milk just for the purpose of giving it away to children who need mother's milk. There are gemachim with all sorts of medical equipment. You need crutches. You need a wheelchair. What do you need? We got it. You need a nebulizer. We got it. No one in the world is doing this. Who is like the Jewish people? There's nobody. So the rest of the world can do one of two things. They can either say, wow, Yidin, you're amazing. The Torah that you got at Mount Sinai, it's taught you such incredible ways to be and to act and to live. We want to be like that. Can you teach us, please? And we'll say, yes, gladly. That's actually our job. We're supposed to be a Orla Goyim. We're supposed to be a light into the nations. 
That's one of our jobs. You are my witnesses, says the Lord. Tell us the Nevi'im. Our job is to be witnesses. Our job is to tell the world what godliness looks like. We saw it firsthand at Mount Sinai on Shavuos. We're supposed to give that message over to the world, and we're only too happy. All day, every day, delegations come into Israel to learn about agricultural techniques and technological advances, and Israel's only too happy to share it with the whole wide world. We just want for the betterment of the world. So that's one thing you can do. You can say, wow, the Jews are doing something amazing, and I want to be like them. Can you teach me? Can I learn from you? Can I sow from Darba Chachma? The jealousy of scribes, the jealousy of sages will increase your wisdom. You'll be a better person for it. Or you could say, ah, oh, the Jews, they're really all crooked. They're all, they're all crooked. They're all lying. They're conniving. They're cheating. They're stealing. They're genocidal. They're butchers. They're hiding our money under their floor beds, for floorboards. They're cutting up Christian children to make blood for their matzah. They're cutting up Arab children to make blood for their matzah. You name it. They have horns. They poison the air. They poison the wells. They're stealing all our money. This is what we've been hearing for thousands of years. Why? Do you know that anywhere Jewish people go in large concentration sees their entire societies being improved? Do you know that? When the Jews were in Spain, Spain was at the height of the world. It was the greatest nation in the world at that time. And in 1492, they kicked out the Jews. The majority of the Jews from Spain went to Portugal. Sorry. The Jews from Spain and Portugal went to Amsterdam. You can go to the Portuguese synagogue. It's really a Spanish synagogue, but the Portuguese were at war with the Spanish. They didn't want to come up and open them. Hi, we're the Spanish synagogue. But the majority of the Jews that left Spain went to Amsterdam. And Amsterdam became the superpower of the world for 200 years. Do you guys know this history part? This is 100% fact. Amsterdam was the most important port in the world for 200 years. Wherever the Jews go in great numbers, sees incredible success, we're happy to share. We love to share. That's one way. You can embrace the Jews. You can welcome them in. And they'll do wondrous things for you. Or you could just hate on them. We just hate on them. Expel them. Beat them. Torture them. Fire rockets at them. Do you know the Israelis, they left behind in Gaza. We gave back Gaza unilaterally. Again, it was many Jews were very much against this because they saw the writing on the wall. They knew that what's happening right now was going to happen. In 2005, right, right around Tishabov, we gave back Gaza. Unilaterally, we withdrew. We wanted peace. We said, here, we're going to give you a place to live. Not only are we going to give you a place to live, we're going to give you greenhouses. So you have money, you can make money, you can make, you can do business, you can be successful. They came in, they destroyed the greenhouses right on, right off the bat. First thing they got there, destroy the greenhouses. We want you to be successful. The Jews want to see the Arab being successful. We really do. You think Jews want to be shooting bombs at other people? You know, Golda Meir said one time, Golda Meir said we could forgive the Arabs for killing our children, but we can never forgive them for making our children into killers. Do you think there's any Jew that wants to go around killing? We don't want to kill. We want peace. We want to, we'll give you technology. We'll give you medicine. Do you know how many tons of medical supplies, building supplies, Israel sends into Gaza every week during non-war time? 
We want to give so much. We want to give and give. We want to be and want to love. But they want to hate. Because again, when there's inequality in the world, when there's certain people who are acting on such a high level, morally, philanthropically, I could either try to climb up and be like the Jew, or I could tear down the Jew and make it out like he's the most horrible people in the world. And then I can continue doing whatever I want and not feel guilty. Hitler, Hitler, Adolf Hitler, your machimo, was a madman, an absolute madman, but he wasn't a fool. And he said, my, my main beef with the Jews, my main contention with the Jews is they brought down conscious to the world. That's what he said. That's our sin. We bring conscious to the world because people see the Jews, they say, wow, look at those people. They give and they love and they're happy and they're kind. And everyone else feels guilty. They feel like, ah, I should do that. But I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a good person. Just call the Jews every bad name in the book. That is Harsina. That's what we're celebrating. We got a better way. We may be hated for it, but we got a better way. Imagine you have a whole line of fruit stores. You know, you go to the Shuk in Israel, right? And the Shuk, they have like, almost like sections of different things. So imagine you have an area in the Shuk that has just 10 fruit and vegetable stores all in a row. One of them keeps getting attacked, keeps getting broken into all the time. Not once, not twice, all the time. And that store keeps putting up more and more sophisticated devices, alarm systems, armed guards, and it keeps getting attacked. You know what you say? You say, if you're a smart person, you're like, somehow, I don't think that's just a fruit store. If there's 10 fruit stores, and most of them are easy to, to break into, and one of them's got locks and alarms and security guards, but yet everybody keeps breaking into this one store, there must be something valuable there. I don't know what, what's going on. Maybe it's a drug smuggling operation. Maybe in the front, he's got a fruit store, but in the back, he's processing cocaine. Maybe he's a diamond smuggler. I, I don't know what he's doing over there, but it ain't a fruit store. No one's coming time after time after time after a fruit store, especially when there's 15 other fruit stores to go for. When they come for us all the time, when they come for the Jews all the time, and they do, they come for us all the time. When they come for the Jews all the time, it's painful and it's difficult, but just know we are not like the other. There's so many other nations they could be attacking and bothering and for far greater reasons, but they come for us. The reason why is because one is not like the other. We have gold, we have diamonds, we have the Torah, we have God's wisdom, which gives us communities and love and concern for others and a way of living that's just so far superior that people are trying to take it out of contention. So we have to understand, when we look at Shavuos, which is coming up, God willing, we have Shavuos coming up, Emir Hashem, this coming Sunday night. And it's Zman Matan Torah Senu. It's a time where we got the Torah. And we're going to get the Torah again. Every year, we live on a loop. We experience the same things all over again. We're going to get the Torah again. Let's recognize that what we got is, is, is far greater than diamonds and gold. We got a way of life. A community, a nation, a relationship with God. And it's priceless. And yeah, 
if you're a very, very wealthy man, you're going to get attacked more, right? You have to put a security gate around your house and you've got to have some kind of protections. That's part of being a very, 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 very wealthy man. But let's know who we are. What we have is, is diamonds and gold. Now, I just realized, I didn't say thank yous when we got started. I'm like halfway through over here and I didn't even start with my thank yous. Let's start all over again. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I want to thank you all for coming out on this beautiful Thursday afternoon. You can be so many places, but you're here. Thank you for coming out. I want to thank the amazing staff over at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda, Yeshiva Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for enabling all that we do together. And I want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app, it's a website, and it's got enough Torah knowledge to fill your mind with endless, endless wisdom. I also want to thank my brother, Ozzy Burnham, for setting me up with a special podcast situation. So you can catch this on anywhere you get your podcasts, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Android Podcasts, um, Spotify, wherever it may be. Okay. Now back to the Torah. I want to tell you a story that happened on May 26th, 20, 2002. A, um, give me one second. I just want to see. Open the door and make us cross breeze. A little warm in here. Remember I tell you guys about the, uh, the math thing? It's 66 degrees outside. If we can get a cross breeze going, it'll be a little cooler. I'm kind of sweating over here. Okay. Now, um, on May 26th of 2022, there was a tugboat named Robert Y. Love. That's the name of the tugboat. That was chugging merrily up the Arkansas River, as it had been doing for 50 years. It was a 50-year-old tugboat. It did get a new engine at one point in the early 90s. And it was traveling up the Arkansas River, pushing two massive barges of coal. The tugboat captain, a man named Joe Dedmond, who had heart issues, unfortunately, and they were undiagnosed, he fainted and fell on the wheel of the boat. And the boat veered off course, out of control. The barges that weighed millions of pounds plowed into the concrete beams that held up a bridge over the Arkansas River. That was the I-40, one of the nation's busiest highways, at 7.45 a.m. Now, traffic was not terrible at that time, and only about three or four cars fell in initially, but the people traveling were traveling 70 miles an hour, and more and more cars and trucks fell in. By the time traffic came to a halt, 11 cars and trucks, 11 cars and three trucks were in the drink, were in the water. And 14 people died that morning. The true story. During the ensuing chaos, one heroic figure appeared out of nowhere as the saving grace in this time of disaster. Captain Williams James Clark of the Green Beret Special Forces, who happened to be in the area, saw the bumbling attempts of rescue workers and volunteers and quickly dove into the water, dragging a mother and daughter from their car to safety. He was about to go back in when a state trooper told him he cannot go back in because the undercurrents are too strong, even for trained divers. After climbing back up from the riverbank and changing into his army fatigues, 
Captain Clark assumed control of the disaster scene on behalf of the U.S. Army. He directed the flow of emergency responders. He coordinated the teams of rescue divers. He directed the local and state police. He instructed the FBI on the proper investigation protocols. He was in touch with the governor. And at one point when the governor came to make a press conference, he told him you cannot make a press conference because right now it's an active investigation. He personally contacted the next of kin of many of the deceased. He was the one who went to their house to give them the information. He spoke to all the TV reporters. He was the one spokesperson. He gave them regular updates on the progress of the rescue operations. He was a cool and collected presence in the face of so much pain and turmoil. And Captain Clark went to bat for the emergency responders. He made a deal with a couple local Arkansas hotels to give him and any other emergency responders rooms for as long as they would need. The US Army would take care of it. He got supplies from all the local hardware stores. Again, the US Army will take care of it. He even went to a Jeep dealership and commandeered a brand new pickup truck, fully loaded from the local dealership to aid him in getting around to take care of his duties. He had the local restaurants send copious amounts of food and beverage for the emergency responders and all the bills would be covered by the US Army once order was established. By the third day of Captain Clark's command and control of the disaster scene, people began to harbor suspicions as to the nature of their hero. For starters, no one could find the mother and daughter that Captain Clark claimed to have pulled out of the water. They just didn't exist. Secondly, Captain Clark cut a strange figure for somebody wearing the fatigues of the Green Beret Special Forces. The Green Beret is one of the most highly trained and elite fighting forces in the U.S. Army. And it's made up entirely of seasoned and highly trained warriors. Captain James Clark was morbidly obese, well over 300 pounds. He did not look like your typical Green Beret, shall we say. Thirdly, there was no reason in the world that a member of the Green Beret Special Forces should be taking care of a downed bridge it either should be state and local people or at most the US Army Corps of Engineers, but not the Green Beret Special Forces. The Green Beret Special Forces go into like Pakistan and take out terrorists. They don't help out bridges that are down in America. And lastly, while Captain Clark used a lot of technical terms, it was becoming evident that he had no idea what he was talking about. He had no idea about rescue protocols. Most strange of all was the way he would often, in the middle of talking to people who just get stuck And he would just continue on 10 seconds later. As if his brain had just been rebooted, restarted. As suspicions began to mount, Captain Clark got into his commandeered pickup truck and fled to Canada. It was later revealed that Captain Williams James Clark was not a captain. He was never in the military. He was actually a twice convicted con artist. He hadn't saved anybody from the river. He had basically stolen a pickup truck, hotel rooms, food, hardware supplies. And a few weeks later, he was captured by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I assume they were mounted in cars or pickup trucks because 
I don't think mounted on horses, they would have caught a guy in a pickup truck. But in any case, he was captured by the Royal Canadian Mountain Police and deported to the U.S., where he pled guilty to the felony charges of impersonating a federal officer, theft of a pickup truck in hotel rooms, and illegal firearm possession. He was sentenced to six years in prison, of which he spent five. Now, my friends, here is the strange thing. He managed to steal a $50,000 pickup truck, not by force. People just gave him the keys. He managed to steal tens of thousands of dollars worth of food and beverage, but he didn't hide it. He just made phone calls and people brought it to him. The governor of one of the United States of America was pushed around by him. He's telling the governor where you can go or where you can't go. The FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, took orders for two days from a man who knew nothing about investigations. He was on national TV for two days, <clears throat> left and right, giving interviews to news outlets all around the country as the man in charge of a crisis, using terms that don't even make sense, like we're searching the perimeter grid. The grid is the inside, perimeter is the outside. Or vehicular manpower. It's a vehicle, it's not manpower. Or predictive debriefing. Prediction is before, debriefing is after. He's walking around saying things that don't make any sense. There's not a shred of truth to anything he said, and the whole country went along with it. How do we fall for this? How does this happen? The answer is that the eye sees what it sees. And then the heart interprets it the way we want it to be. The heart is where the emotions lie. So the heart interprets what we see the way we want it to be interpreted. And the brain just limps on by in times of crisis. We want a hero. Yeah, we want somebody from the Green Beret, the best of the best. We want someone to come in and save the day, someone who knows what they're talking about. And if they're going to use terms that we don't know, it means he probably knows more than me, right? It's amazing. He's got, he's got predictive debriefing and searching perimeter grids and all kinds of things. It's amazing. We want that in a time of crisis. So when we see things, even though there's inconsistencies all over the place, we see what we see. And then our heart interprets it the way we want to interpret it. And we just let the brain limp along. And the brain's like, wait a second, hold on. Something ain't right over here. You're like, stop being, stop, stop it. Why you always got to be like that? Why do I want you and your facts? You're getting in the way of what I want to believe. You're getting in the way of what I want to believe. And this, by the way, happens all the time. How often do we get into a relationship where there's warning bells going off left and right? But we want in because for whatever reasons, our heart's saying, yeah, 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 go, go, go. And then our brain just, it's like, not, doesn't have a vote, doesn't have a veto. That's why the Torah, when it tells us how to live our lives, it says, You shall not stray after your hearts and after your eyes, because it's telling you, when you see information through your eyes, and then it goes from your eyes to your heart, which is the seat of emotion, you're in big trouble. You have to let things come in your eyes and from your eyes to your brain, to the seat of reason, the seat of chachma, the seat of wisdom. 
Take apart what you see, digest what you see, investigate what you see, investigate what you hear. Don't just let it go straight to the emotional side. Because when it does, you're going to be feeling the disastrous effects again and again and again. That's how we live in a world. But there's no truth. There's no reality. As the verse says, Ish everybody does whatever they want. I want to read to you the Gemara from Sanhedrin. Daftadi Zion Amit Aleph. Okay, I'm going to read to you what's going to happen in the times that we get close to Mashiach. And I just want you to think about it if this sounds familiar to you. Okay, here we go. Tanya, we learned in Abraisa, Rabbi Huda Omer, Rabbi Huda says, Dar Shaben David Ba, in the generation that Messiah, the son of David, will come, Beis Havad Yeliznus. The hall of assembly of the sages, the people where people used to come and talk deep thoughts, ideas, will be a place of absolute sexual immorality. Think of college campuses, the place that people are supposed to come together and develop their minds. <laughs> it's become a joke in America. The Galilee will be destroyed by Gavlan Yasham and the, and the Gavlan. The Bashan, which is where the Golan is, will be desolate. The residents of the border cities will be going from place to place and nobody wants them. Hmm. People massing up at the borders, nobody wants them. I think we might have heard of that before. The wisdom of the scholars will diminish. All the scholars that we used to listen to, we just burn their books now, right? We just burned their books now, because what were they? They are a bunch of white supremacists, everybody, anybody who was before us. We can't learn the classics in college anymore. We're removing department after department that studies Aristotle, Plato. I'm not talking, I'm not, I'm not talking about the Jewish world. I'm talking about the non-Jewish world today. They're literally removing all the classic teachings from the colleges, because they're, 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 they're white supremacist teachings. No more Aristotle, no more Plato, no more Socrates. No more Seneca. Now, again, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with any of those people. No more Nietzsche, no more Kafka. We can only learn people that existed in the last 12 minutes and were appropriate. So the wisdom of scholars is going to be diminished. Anybody who fears sin will be despised. If you have a sense of morality and you believe that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, certain God described laws of morality are right and certain God-described laws of morality are wrong, you will be despised for it. You will be despised for your beliefs. How dare you believe that this is wrong? How you, dare you have a religious belief that goes against my beliefs? You bigot, you sicko, you cruel person, you supremacist. The generation... The face of the generation will be like the face of the dog. What does this mean? A dog walks, and you see him walking in front of his master, and you think, oh, he's the leader. But what does the dog keep doing? Every time they get to like a T in the road, the dog turns around. I'm going, this way, we going, which way are we walking this time? It's a generation where the leaders are being led by the children behind it. Sound familiar? I don't know. Let's keep going. The MS Deres. And the truth will be lacking, as it is stated, 
Vesar Meira Mishkolel, as it's stated in the verse in Isaiah 59, and the truth will be lacking, and those who depart from evil are going to be negated. Hmm. Truth will be rare. Now, the Gemara says something interesting here. It says, What is the meaning? Ask the Gemara. What does it mean? My What does it mean the truth will be lacking? Amri Debei Rav, the people from the study hall of Rav said, means that anyone who has truth will become like little flocks and they'll walk away. The Marasha, one of the great early commentators of Shmuel Adels explains, and what does this mean? We have a Gemara that also says that no matter what happens, there will always be people of faith in the world. So you can't say the truth will be gone. Rather, what's going to happen? Anyone who holds on to truth will be afraid to express their own truth. So they're going to have to become to little, little flocks, little groups. There's only little groups that you can speak truth in because you're afraid. You're simply afraid to say what you believe, lest you get excoriated by the mob. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Does anybody feel like this might relate to today? Do you think that there might be people today who are afraid to speak about the truth that they see evident for fear of being mobbed? Do you think it may have gotten to the point where people are sometimes even afraid to speak the truth in their own homes because their children will out them as being bigots or canceled? Does anybody think we might be in the generation of Icarus of the Mashiach? That we might be in the generation leading up to Mashiach? I think so. I think we meet all the criteria. And we all know that the world got crazy, crazy, cray-cray throughout this COVID pandemic. But let's first look at the world before. Let's look at the, the normal world before the pandemic. I'm going to give you studies that came out in the years prior to the pandemic. Here's a study from Eagle Hill Consulting Group, June 14th, 2016. It's my son's birthday. I had a son who was born on June 14th, 2016. In one area of the world, my son was being born. In the other area of the world, the Eagle Hill Consulting Group was putting out a paper in which they studied people in the workplace. Do you believe in the people who work alongside you? Do you believe that the people who work in your company are being honest and truthful? And they discovered that 54% of respondents say, I don't believe that my coworkers are being honest. I don't believe that people in my workforce are honest. And when they asked that about government, the number was way lower. It was a 75% says, I don't believe the government institutions. Next. November 16th, 2014, a study cited by the Philadelphia Tribune discovers that technology adds to a decline of honesty and integrity. <laughs> no. Are you sure? Are you sure that people having the ability to create fake accounts and disseminate fake information without ever exposing who they really are, do you think that might lead to a decline in honesty and integrity? When you come to think of it, that might be a reality. Yeah, I guess so. I guess if you put out the ability for everybody to create as many fake accounts as they want and to put out absolute lies, whether it be pump and dumping stocks or political garbage, whatever it is, just the, the volume, the sheer volume. Yeah, I guess technology might add to a decline in honesty and integrity. That's a good point. Next, an article from the Huffington Post, not a um, 
This is a, a publication that is fiercely liberal publication. June 16th, 2016. Also, wow, two days after my son was born. The article was called The Decline of Integrity in the Rise of Individualism, which basically stated that the more you start being focused on every little individual's experience or their lived experience or their expressed experience or whatever you want to call it, the more we have a lack of overall integrity in the world. Because the minute you start saying, well, I experienced it differently, even though the facts might go against me, but me as an individual, I experienced it differently. And the more we start giving credence to the individualism, the more we lose overall integrity. Now, this is all, again, before the pandemic. Further studies. Hold on. This paper here, hold on. Here we go. Further studies indicate a lack of academic integrity, academic integrity. Believe it or not, A, students in colleges, there's an enormous industry of selling students college papers, meaning there's an enormous industry of, of people go to college, don't write their own papers, pay other people to write their papers. It's a massive multi-billion dollar industry. And there's also on the professor's part, professors today who are working on research for four or five years, if their hypothesis is not proven, they fudge the data. It's alarmingly high, the amount of data being fudged in professor's papers. There's just no integrity in the academic institutions. That was all, that was from May 30, 2019. That's all pre-COVID. And then we come to the COVID world and it's even crazier. We have an organization today called Antifa. Antifa means anti-fascists. What are fascists? Fascists are people who use violence to push their political means. What does Antifa do? Uses violence to push their political means. So anti-fascists are doing what fascism is, right? I, I, I can go all and on and on and on. What's, what's the sugya today in Congress? What are we dealing with? What's the dafyomi in Congress today? We're dealing with election integrity law. They're pushing an election integrity law, which says that you can't require anybody to show ID, you can't even require a signature verification to match up signatures, to make sure that, that there's any integrity in it. So the election integrity law says you can't have ID, you can't have even a signing, you can't force somebody to sign something and show that they're actually the person they are. That's called election integrity, which is the exact opposite of integrity. We're being told that when a child is born in the hospital, we don't, we don't know what he is. Is it a boy or a girl? It used to be pretty easy. Now we're told, no, you, you, have, you don't know. You don't know what your child is. We live in an environment, it, it just, it's so crazy. And that's in the political world. How about the world of social media influencers? How crazy is this? How many teenage girls, how many women around the world are held hostage by trying to look like some social media influencer who only posts photos of themselves that are highly doctored by graphic designers they have on staff? The insanity. People who don't love themselves enough to post a real picture, authentic picture of themselves are influencing more people to not love themselves and to have unrealistic expectations of their own self and to have lower self-esteem because of that. A world in which singers, actresses, media figures are telling us how we should live our lives when they can't stay married for longer than a week. If they stay out of rehab for two years, they get a special pin. If you're a celebrity and you stay out of rehab for two years, you get a little achievement award. And they're gonna tell us how we should live our lives. It's an upside down world. There's no truth. There's no reality. 
There's no wisdom. It's all being ruled by emotion. This is exactly what the Torah says. Don't go after your eyes and your hearts. Don't let stuff come into your eyes and then bring it to your emotional lobe, to your heart, because then it's going to just say, I want that, I need that, I don't feel good about myself because I don't have that. It's so painful. The anxiety, the stress that our children are going through, our teenagers, our adults, seeing everything. And we know that the lives of these celebrities are miserable lives. We know because there's drug overdoses and divorces galore, but yet somehow we look at them and we want to be like them, which is so, we're not thinking with our brains, we're letting our emotion hijack the whole conversation. How do we get around this, my friends? How do we get around this? Sin is our God that created us for his honor and separated us from all those who make these mistakes and gave us Torah's MS. Hashem gave us a Torah, the gift that we're going to be appreciating, the gift that we're going to be celebrating on Shavuos night. That is your escape hatch. In a world aflame with dishonesty and manipulation and disinformation, Hashem gave us a Torah that is truth. Let's understand how this works. God is truth. The Gemara says in Masech Shabbos, Daf Nun Hey Amud Beis. The Gemara says in Tractate Shabbos fifty-five B. The signet ring of Hashem is truth. A signet ring would be would tell you who your, your the family was. We have a signet ring, and that's what you would use to stamp all those um, you know the, the wax seals. And it would have your family's coat of arms and your family's coat of arms. If you were in Scotland where there was a lot of stags and deers, you might have a stag to show them from Scotland. And if you had a big castle, maybe you'd have like some turrets on your coat of arms or you'd have Lady Justice. If you, you know, whatever it was that you wanted to show, this is what you're all about. When Hashem says, you know what I'm all about? My signet ring is truth. I am truth. That's step number one. God is truth. Step number two. God wrote himself into the Torah. The Gemara tells us in, again, Shabbos, Daf Kuf Hei Amad Aleph, tractate Shabbos, page 105a. Rabbi Yochanan Didei Amar, Rabbi Yochanan says, what does the word Anochi mean? We got the Torah at Sinai, Hashem said to us, Anochi, Hashem, I am Hashem, your God. What does the word Anochi mean? Anochi means Anon, Nafshi, Kesavis, Yehavis, I, my soul, I wrote it down and I gave it to you in the Torah. Hashem literally wrote himself into the Torah and gave it to us. So now we have A, point A, God is truth. Point B, God wrote himself into the Torah. So here we have the transitive law. Do you guys remember from logic in ninth grade math? If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. If God is truth. And if God wrote himself into the Torah, then the Torah is truth. And if I learn the Torah, if it's me plus Torah equals me truth, I have truth coming into my world. And what the Torah allows us to do is the Torah allows us that when things come into our eyes, you don't go after your heart and after your eyes, you bring it up to your head, your incredible head, the moach, the brilliant brain that Hashem gave you, stronger than the greatest computers in the world. And you analyze data 
and you determine, is this true? Is this false? Is this right? Is this wrong? Is this good? Is this bad? Should I follow? Should I flee? Mishnah says in Pirkei Avos, chapter one, Mishnah two. Shimon HaTadik HaMi Sherek Nesit HaGdola. Shimon HaTadik was from the leftovers, the last of the men of the Great Assembly. Hu HaYom used to say, HaShloshet Varma Olam Olim. The world stands on three things. Al HaTorah, Ba'al HaAvodah, Ba'al Gemilas Chasadim. It stands on Torah, on Avodah, on service of God, which is like prayer, and on Gemilas Chasadim. Let's go through this. If you want to treat people right, if you want to treat other people right, what we call Ben Adam Lechavero, you should do gmilas chasadim. You should do acts of kindness. If you want to treat Hashem right, ben adam lamakom between man and God, then you should talk to Him. You should serve Him. You should daven to Him, which is avoda. That's what it's all about. You should communicate with Him. You want to treat yourself right, ben adam lamatzmo. You want to treat yourself right, then you know what you should do. You should learn Torah. You want to treat yourself right, learn Torah. Again, the world stands on three things. Kamilas, Chassadim, acts of kindness, avodah, service of God, and Torah. One is to build your relationship between you and fellow man, do kindness. To build your relationship between you and God, do avodah. To build yourself up into a normie, normal, healthy, serene, calm individual. Learn Torah, because the Torah will give you MS. The Torah will give you truth. And with that truth, you'll be able to see the world with clear eyes. You'll be able to see yourself with clear eyes. You'll be able to know who you are. You'll be able to respect who you are. Value who you are. It is a tree of life for those who hold on to it. You know, the Torah has many different aspects to it. The Torah has many aspects to it. The Torah is Megan Umatzil. It provides physical protection, which, of course, right now in Eretz Israel, we need that. We need the power of Torah for that. We need, for the Torah, we need um, the Torah, other, other things it does. It gives us wisdom. It gives us halachic jurisprudence to tell everybody, I, please, I, I agree, let's not do too much political stuff here on the comments, please. Ariel, thank you. Um, we have the, we have different properties of the Torah, but right now, what I believe the Torah, for American Jews especially, I mean, for Eretz right now, we need protection, but what we need right now more than ever is we need the koach of the Torah, the power of the Torah gives us of giving us truth, of giving us perspective. The world around us has lost itself. It's come unmoored. It's fallen off of its hinges. There's just, there's just no, everything's changing from minute to minute and there's no reality anymore. We have to hold on to the Torah. That's your escape hatch. The world is burning up. Get out of it. I can't tell you how often I sit down at the, at the dinner table, forget the Shabbos table, the dinner table with my children. I tell them I'm so happy that we're being raised in a from home, in a Torah home, because we're being saved from such insanity out there. The stress, the anxiety, you never know if you're going to say the wrong thing. You're going to, who, who's getting canceled? Who's coming for you next? Do you have to report your parents or you don't have to report your parents? How does this work? Am I reporting them? I, I, it, it's just, it's just, it's so, it's so crazy. Bullying, the constant bullying, the constant making people feel bad because they don't look like the person who doesn't really look like them either because they're all just being graphic designed. The requirement to believe things that you know you see with your own eyes. It's, it's not true. 
cities are burning up. You see videos of cities burning up. They say, no, no, it's all peaceful protests. But you know it's not true, but you, you're being cuddled into believing it. You're being cuddled to believe things that you know are not true. Grab onto the Torah. This is the gift that God gave us. When the world will be crazy, you can hold on to me and hold on to my Torah and find sanity and find peace. So when we sit down on Shavuos, number one, we have to think of how thankful we have to be to our great, 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 great grandparents. Because when all the nations of the world were offered a life of truth and integrity and honesty, they said, no thanks. No thanks, God. I don't want moral integrity. That's not in my bucket list. And when God offered it to the Jewish people, what did we say? Your great-grandparents said, yes, please. Nasa and Ishma. So we have to be so thankful to our great-great-grandparents for wanting this. We have to be so thankful to God for granting it to us, for giving us a life that the more we engage in it, the more we live it, the more Torah we bring into our life, the more mitzvahs that are the Torah ways that we bring into our life, the more serenity we have, the more perspective we have, the more we know who we are, the more we know what's right and what's wrong, the more we can see the incredible abundant beauty that is still in the world. And that is what we need to have in this world. So let's thank Hashem for giving us this beautiful Torah. Let's recognize its incredible value. Let's hold on to it strong and be so thankful for Hashem for giving to us and make sure that this coming year we incorporate that Torah more and more into our world to bring us MS, truth, kindness, integrity, and all the beauty of godliness inside of ourselves. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful Shabbos and a wonderful Shavuos.